Welcome to Foresight, I'm Greg Williams. We're currently doing a special series in which we spend time with a number of the speakers who we were fortunate to have grace our stage at the Wired Impact Sustainability event in London last November. Today, we're gonna to look at the global food system. So by 2050, the global population will be 9.7 billion, 2 billion more people than today. 56% of us live in cities today. By 2050, it's gonna be more like 70%. And if our diets remain the same, we'll need to double food production. This just isn't possible, though, with the way that we produce food today. 28% of global greenhouse gas emissions are caused by the food industry, largely due to land clearance for agricultural use. 78% of global ocean and freshwater pollution is caused by agricultural products such as fertilizers, biocides, herbicides and antibiotics, and human-induced climate change has reduced agricultural productivity by 21% since the 1960s. Agriculture and food production are the primary drivers of biodiversity loss and land degradation. So something has to change. And as part of the reinvention of our food systems, technology-based closed-loop approaches to agriculture are receiving significant amounts of investment. So-called vertical farming is part of this. And today, we'll explore these connected precision systems which grow crops at hundreds of times the efficiency of soil-based agriculture. Located in or close to urban centres, they slash farm-to-table time and eliminate logistics. But challenges remain. How do they scale to serve everyone, not just wealthy city dwellers? And how do we reduce their carbon intensity? Berlin-based InFarm is a pioneer in this industry with 17 large hubs and smaller units at hundreds of retail locations in Europe and Canada. To explore this subject, I'm delighted to welcome Arnavaz Shatton, Director of Sustainability and Impact at InFarm. Arnavaz, thank you so much for joining us today. It's a pleasure, Greg. Thank you for having me. So we're going to talk about food. Let's start with the big picture and look at the landscape. I'm intrigued to know what proportion of CO2 emissions are caused by, by agriculture and how significant is it as an industry when we're thinking about reaching net zero emissions? Sure. When it comes to climate change, the role that the food system plays is incredible. It's very significant. So just under 30% of global greenhouse gas emissions are contributed by the food sector in different components of the supply chain. So there's no way that we can tackle climate change and reach net zero without really transforming our food systems. And as big a problem as that is, it's not the only problem that you're facing when it comes to food systems. Because if you look at it on a planetary level, the planetary boundaries framework is actually a really good way of looking at it because it looks at holistic picture of how human activity is impacting our environment. And other than climate change, which is a big and scary enough problem as it is, we also have a loss of biodiversity, mostly driven by land use. And again, agriculture is the biggest culprit here. And we have the biogeochemical flows of nitrogen and oxygen. Uh, again, these are being crossed and breached from the safe operating zone. And one can argue food system is the biggest contributor here. So there's no way that we can tackle any of those big systemic issues without looking at our relationship with our food 
and the role of food systems in tackling all of those systemic issues. So food needs to be at the center of the discussion when you talk about climate change, when you talk about biodiversity, when you talk about land use, when you talk about all of those things that are now being crossed, being breached from the safe zone, and the human activities now being the culprit. Just hearing what you're saying about the global sort of food system is when we think about agriculture specifically, are we really in a position where what we're doing right now is pretty much unsustainable? Absolutely and categorically. We cannot continue producing and distributing food in the same way that we have done in the future. So if you look at simply how much food we need to produce, there's a famous statistic that always just scares me. We need more food produced in the next 40 years than we have produced in the past 8,000, considering the population growth and considering the diets that uh, different populations are switching to. And we simply don't have the land and resources to produce all of that. So it's a serious problem with the natural resource capacity. The second problem is that the environmental cost of that is untenable. It's going to impact our livelihoods. It's not a choice anymore to create so much harm. If you look at freshwater resources, if you look at greenhouse gas emissions that we were just talking about, if you look at marine pollution, if you look at species and habitats becoming extinct and at risk, all of this means that the food system cannot go on in the same way. And we have a lot of new challenges. We have climate change making it even more difficult to produce food in the existing conditions. We have now really large, really complex, really globalized supply chains for food uh, that are extremely vulnerable to various systemic shocks, as we have seen with the COVID pandemic, as we have seen with the Ukraine crisis. These are not resilient uh, systems. These are extremely vulnerable. And we need the opposite. In the face of systemic problems, we need systems that would be resilient and would survive these various shocks. And our current food system is the exact opposite of that, not to mention how wasteful it is. Up to a third of food is lost somewhere in the value chain, either at the production level, at the harvest level, in transport and retail level, in various components of the value chain. But it is currently really wasteful and we don't afford any of those things. So we have to do it uh, completely differently in future. There's a lot to unpack in what you just said, but I'd love to just talk a little bit. You mentioned complex supply chains and these you know, systemic problems that we face. I'd love to talk to you a little bit about food security, because it's actually a really significant issue here in the UK at the moment, for all kinds of reasons. But it's obviously increasingly urgent pretty much everywhere. Most places are not food independent. Um, what are the major challenges that most countries face when it comes to ensuring that there's food security? It's a really difficult question to, to answer because of all the various um, local differences in issues of food security. Um, food security could be a symptom of uh, so many other systemic issues. But roughly spoken, it's partly the problem of natural resources. So land, water, nutrients. These are issues that many countries are facing, especially in the face of climate change, making those existing problems even worse and putting new constraints on resources such as water, energy, land, etc. The other problem is that many countries import a lot of their food already. So they are vulnerable when it comes to 
for example, geopolitical instability or pandemics, because now those complex lengthy supply chains need to get food from those conflict areas or through those conflict areas to areas that are relying on food imports. And this is extremely difficult, as again, we have seen with the example of the Ukraine conflict. So however way you look at it, this current uh, way of producing and distributing food is not going to help us achieve food security in many of the markets. Some even rich countries have simply uh, an issue with land, for example. If you look at Singapore, the available land, of course, is extremely limited and is costing a fortune. So they have enshrined it in their own policy to achieve uh, food security by creating food independence, by creating food self-sufficiency. So, for example, they are aiming to produce 30% of their own food in Singapore by 2030. And given that Singapore is not going to grow, all of that food has to come from uh, controlled environment spaces and vertical farming as part of that, for example, as well as other solutions that are going to be necessary within the whole food system to produce different and new sources of food for the increasing urban population. Definitely want to get onto vertical farming shortly, but I've got one more question in this kind of opening sort of section, which is you've outlined the enormous systemic problems that we face in terms of global food supply and the sustainability of it. If we're thinking about innovation and changing that, what are the kind of the key ways that we're going to have the most impact when we're thinking about changing those models of production and distribution? So you talk about innovation, and this is a really key word, because the problems that we are facing and the systemic challenges that we are facing in the current food system and why it needs to change, it cannot rely on just creating efficiency measures in the existing ways of producing food. So innovation is key. Using very new methods, very different methods, radically different methods to produce food is going to be really important. And there's going to be a host of technologies that are going to help us make that happen. Those technologies need to decouple food from environmental degradation. This is really, really important because the cost of that environmental degradation is increasingly untenable. So we just don't afford to do that again and again. And the second problem is a lot of our population is increasingly moving into the city. So solutions that might have worked before, they're not going to work now because if current urban population is around 50% or so, it's going to hit 70% by 2050, uh, roughly on average. So we cannot produce the same methods in the same ways using the same supply chains. And the efficiency needs to also change significantly. So how we have used land, water, energy, natural resources, all of that has to change because we have very limited amounts of that. Diets need to change. So our innovation needs to also tackle, for example, extinct uh, staples, things that we have not eaten for decades. We need to find new ways of producing proteins, um, uh, different sources of proteins. Again, because cattle farming and the impact that we have seen on land, on climate, again, untenable. So that innovation is to tackle the issue of environmental degradation and decouple food from environmental degradation. It needs to create a new relationship with uh, land, water, energy, and other inputs. And it needs to be much more fit for an urban population in the face of climate change. So it needs to be fit for those sets of uh, changing parameters. 
So you've identified the sort of systemic challenges that we face, Arnavaz, and also you've mentioned this enormous shift we're going to see in the coming years of people moving from rural areas to urban areas. Now let's talk about vertical farming, because that clearly is a potential way of addressing some of the food security issues. How do you see that sort of playing out in the coming years? How can vertical farming become an integral part of of the urban landscape? Um, Again, a complex question. So vertical farming is part of broader sets of technologies and methods of farming. Let's call them controlled environment agriculture. And even controlled environment agriculture itself is maybe within a broader host of farming methods that are going to be really important with a higher component of technology and innovation that are going to help us produce food very differently. So let's call them agritech for the purpose of this conversation. So using more advanced, more intensive, more innovative, more tech-heavy ways of farming that are going to help us decouple production uh, food from environmental degradation and make it more fit for an urban population. And let's talk about vertical farming because this is what Inform is all about. Um, Vertical farming has features that are extremely promising within those complex and challenging parameters. First of all, it's extremely land efficient and space efficient. So roughly our own research and numbers, but about 90 to 95 percent more space efficient and land efficient than open farming, for example, soil based farming. It's also very climate resilient. So if open farming, traditional farming produces food, and it's dependent on favorable climate conditions. It can produce food in particular times of the year and only so much of it. Whereas in a vertical farm, in a controlled environment, you can actually produce food all year round. This is really important because when you need to produce food for an urban population, you want quick access to it within the urban areas, and you want that production not to be so prone to climate shocks, for example. The other point is the distribution and supply chains involved in the current food systems are not going to be a good fit for an urban population. So they're too complex, too costly, too long, uh, too fragile, too vulnerable. So we need a more resilient system, which is the opposite of that. We need it much more localized. We need it much more accessible. And we need it also to be more agile because we need to be able to plan around unforeseen shocks. And this is not possible with those highly optimized but highly international supply chains. This is how vertical farming can really make a difference. And let's say generally controlled environment agriculture. So controlled environment agriculture has been around for a while. Let's talk a little bit about vertical farming specifically. And it does feel like there is a question around whether it's really delivering on its promise. I mean, one of the criticisms of it is that it's just, you know, food garnishes or salads for wealthy people in cities. In your view, what needs to happen to really have impact at scale? That's a really good question, because as you said, um, CA has been around for a while, and uh, now there is a lot of hype around vertical farming. So is it going to fulfill its promise or not? That's an extremely fair and valid question. But we need to remember vertical farming is still fairly young. It hasn't had time to, to scale, to mature. It's still a fairly young industry. It needs to scale. But the promise, the proof of concept is definitely there. Vertical farming is showing a lot of potential in producing food for the intended 
a target group within the new parameters that we need to define for it, within you know, environmental health and within the urban constraints. What needs to happen for vertical farming to become a serious player and not just playing on the margins? It needs to scale, obviously. So you said it yourself, it needs to uh, move away from just becoming a nice added bonus of herbs and salad garnishes. It needs to move away from that. It needs to move to areas that have an urgent need for food security, an urgent need for new sources of food. So it definitely needs to scale geographically, especially to areas that have a higher reliance on food imports. It needs to also scale in terms of its impact, in terms of its calorie impact, because at the moment the focus is on leafy greens and herbs and salads, and this is not what the world feeds on. In fact, almost half of the calories that the world consumes comes from just three staple crops. So herbs and salads are nice to have. They're nutritious. They're good food. But that's not going to make a massive impact in terms of calorie impact. So vertical farming and sea in general needs to move into that direction to make the growing of staples indoors a reality. At the moment, this is possible in the lab. Uh, Infarm is also one of the companies that's experimenting with it, and the trials are very promising and very successful. But the whole sector needs to show that this is viable commercially, that this is possible to produce at scale and not just in, in lab conditions. And the third point here really is the climate impact of vertical farming and CEA. So at the moment, it's an energy intensive and carbon intensive uh, way of producing food which in the face of climate change and transition to net zero is not great. But I would argue this is a temporary problem because it's all about efficiencies. It's about energy sourcing and it's about climate control systems that need to be made much more efficiently and uh, tackle into renewable sources of energy. But this problem is not a fundamental barrier. It can be fixed. If those three things happen, uh, vertical farming can play an extremely crucial role in transforming the food systems in the way that uh, we need them to. So you just mentioned that half of the food consumed globally comes from three just staple crops, is that correct? That's correct. So it's, it's about 42%. I'm just interested to know, what, which of those crops? So that's uh, maize, that's wheat, and that's rice. Um, what needs to happen to scale that? Like Those are obviously grown in vast swathes of, of agricultural land currently. How would that work in the future? Can you just describe that, please? Of course. So for those uh, staples to be grown indoors, there needs to be research and funding and uh, breeding programs that would improve how these crops grow indoors. Because at the moment, it could take a lot of space. It could take a lot of uh, water, for example. It could take much longer than it should. So that equation is not going to be economically viable and you wouldn't be able to produce it at scale. And if you cannot produce it at scale, it's just not going to be a good solution. It's not going to be sustainable. It's not going to help us make a dent in that food equation. But um, if you bring enough funding, if you support it with government policy, if you use research and technology to make those crops more suited to indoor farming and indoor growing, then you have a real chance. And as we have seen with the successful trials, this is very much possible uh, under lab conditions, but at the moment it's too expensive. So we need to produce it uh, much more efficiently and we need to scale it for this to gain benefits from those market parameters that's going to make it scalable. 
We're going to take a short break and we'll be back soon with more from Arnavaz. Earlier on, you talked a little bit about how we can't just rely on increased efficiencies in the way that we're currently producing food. I'm interested to get a sense from you of of how much more efficient vertical farming is compared to traditional agriculture. And also, where do those efficiencies come from? So in terms of resources, generally, uh, vertical farming is much more efficient. The main reason is that it's a fully controlled environment. That means it is sealed from outside influence. So you don't have those issues with pests and disease, for example. You can fully control that because a lot of agricultural produce is, is actually lost to pests and disease. It also means you don't have to use a lot of fertilizers and pesticides, actually. You don't use any chemical pesticides in vertical farming, and that's a huge advantage because you can control the growing environments, the humidity, the light, the temperature, etc. You can also control some of those organisms that create pests and disease. So that's, again, a huge advantage. In terms of land, extremely efficient. Um, The number looks like between 90 to 95%, depending on the crop and the method of farming and depending on space utilization. But it's in the 80s and 90s, definitely. It's very, very high. Water, it's a fairly circular system. Hydroponics particularly, which is one of the technologies used in vertical farming, basically uses a nutrient solution to feed the plants. So there's no need for soil. And that water can be regularly recycled. So you are feeding the nutrients to the plants, the water finishes its cycle, and then it can be recycled over and over and over over again. So theoretically, that water can be used permanently. At the moment, the water consumption ratio looks like, again, 90 to 95% advantage over open farming. No chemical pesticides used and significantly lower use of fertilizers because of the advantage that indoor farming, that fully controlled environment has. Actually, that you just raised a really interesting point. You mentioned there's no soil. Can you just describe for those people who maybe haven't seen what it actually looks like inside a vertical farm? What does that look like if we're sort of if we're growing? I don't know a leafy green vegetable, say like a spinach or something. So imagine a sealed and closed environment that has stacked spaces vertically, and you have the plants and the roots sitting in a liquid solution. So this is basically water and nutrients. So the roots are sitting in that solution and feeding off it. And then you have climate control systems to control temperature, humidity, pH, and so on. And you have LED lights to feed the growth of the plants. This is roughly what most vertical farms have in common. In our case, using hydroponics methodology, hydroponics means the agent that gets the nutrients to the plants is not the soil, as you have with traditional farming, with open farming. It's that water solution. And that water solution is something the roots sit in, but it's also something that's circulating in the system, basically bringing the nutrients to the plants. So this is this is the basics of it. And that's obviously is part of the uh, efficiencies uh, that you, you've been describing. Clearly, this kind of approach needs land in urban areas. That must be challenging, right? Because one of the efficiencies of vertical farming is that there's a much shorter supply chain and that we're not moving trucks around with goods. Is that one of the challenges that vertical farming is going to face is like how to find 
land, large large swathes of land in urban areas in you know prosperous cities, expensive cities like Berlin and San Francisco uh, and London. The answer to that question is both yes and no. Vertical farming can take a lot of different shapes and forms based on the market, based on the city. For example, think of Singapore. In Singapore, what you want to do is to stack it as high as possible because that land is at premium. In other areas where you have an abundance of land, but it's just not arable land, for example, in the Middle East, you don't have to stack it that vertically to that extent. You can actually use the um, lateral space much more. So it can take a lot of different shapes and forms, but generally you don't need good quality land. You can use existing warehouses within city limits. You don't have to have that farming system in the city center where things are at a premium. It also doesn't mean that you will lose the advantage of being close to the urban consumer. You can have both. Uh, What we do is we leverage spaces around the cities that are already there that doesn't need to be developed for us, such as existing warehouses, as I said. So we use them strategically to place our growing center, for example, which means we have quick access to the distribution centers of our customers or the retail chains that we work with, but it's also close enough to the urban consumer. So the food miles, that is one of the advantages of vertical farming, is not going to be compromised by that model. So you still have that logistics and that transport advantage, but you don't need to be right in the middle of the city. So you mentioned earlier that vertical farming is is just one of a large number of controlled environment agritech initiatives that's really kind of beginning to get a lot of attention from investors. I'd love to get a sense from you of how vertical farming fits in with all the other forms of agrotech we're seeing at the moment that are getting a lot of attention, the you know insect protein, lab cultivated meat, mycelium. Are you thinking of this in terms of like a broader ecosystem of food provision around this kind of form of innovation? We absolutely do. So what we can see in that broader space of agri-tech is that these are disruptive models of producing food. These are transformationally different ways of producing food that are going to help us tackle some of the challenges and meet some of those new requirements that we have in the broader food system. So if you think about all of these companies that are now you know, from vertical farms to companies that produce edible insects, as you said, lab cultivated meat, etc. All of them have this in common that they are all trying in one way or the other, decoupling food production from reliance on land, on nature, on uh, an abundance of resources. So you see all of that uh, playing out in different ways, but for the same goal you see a higher reliance on innovation and technology across all of them. So again, the technology used in vertical farming with um, edible insects and lab-produced meat could be very, very different, but they all mean you're leveraging technology and data and basically cloud-connected systems to optimize production, to continuously improve basically machine learning, how we can do things better based on how we have done it in the past. All of this is made possible in that same ecosystem. So it's really important and uh, we have recognized the importance of these kind of partnerships, these kind of uh, collaboration spaces. Uh, For example, Infarm is a member of GATA. Uh, This is a global agri-food tech alliance of companies that are already on the market or 
they are ready to go to market, but they're all in that same space of producing food completely differently to how it's been produced before. And what this group is doing is they're going to try and raise the voice of the industry because we need more awareness on the uh, consumer side, on the investor side, on the government side, and generally on the markets. We need much more awareness and education about why it's important to produce food completely differently than we have done in the past. It's about attracting funding, what this alliance has tried to do. It's about how we can measure performance, how we can improve things, how we can share learnings, exchange data, how we can basically all work towards the same goal, doesn't matter how differently we're all uh, looking at it from so many different aspects, but it's all for the same goal. So collaboration in that space is really, really important. I'm just trying to understand the broader landscape. Are there third parties or like certification agencies that you work with in order to ensure best practice and also, I guess, to like verify your own progress? Absolutely. I mean, this is important for any company, but particularly for us in a new industry, we want to make sure that there is no greenwashing. We want to make sure that we are transparent and we are responsible with communicating what we're doing and how we're doing it. And we're also open to learning from our challenges and our gaps. I'll give you three examples of the kind of third-party frameworks and certification mechanisms that we work with and we actively use. One of them is the Science-Based Targets Initiative. This is, uh, as you know, a target-setting framework that helps companies reduce their emissions uh, towards net zero in time to meet the goals of the Paris Agreement. So we are the first vertical farming company to have set science-based targets, and so far the only vertical farming company, as far as I know, to have set science-based targets. We're just uh, waiting for validation by the SBCI, but we have set targets for our scope one and two. We are committing to 42% reduction by 2030 against the 2021 baseline and about uh, 90% by 2045, by which time we hope to reach net zero, and to reduce scope three intensity by about 48% in that same time and to ultimately achieve 97% reduction by 2045. When it comes to holistic sustainability issues, we are using B Corp as a certification. Just a couple of months ago, we got our certification to B Corp. This is um, a standard that helps companies meet social environmental performance standards, transparency and accountability. And now that we're certified, we're also going to use the framework as a blueprint for continuous improvement, because again, there are um, social environmental topics that we definitely hope to improve on. And this is a really good standard for that. And finally, we're using Global Gap. This is an internationally recognized uh, standard that ensures good agricultural practices. So anything from food safety and workers' health to animal welfare and environmental protections falls under Global Gap. And we maintain a certification for each of our production hubs. Let's look forward a little bit now, Arnavaz. Um you dealt with the question around sort of you know, the criticism of vertical farming being focused on sort of salad garnishes for wealthy people in the West. But I'm interested to get a sense from you of how can vertical farming be best adapted to markets beyond sort of prosperous Western or Middle Eastern cities? How can we really get this to scale in parts of the world, maybe where there are real sort of challenges around food production and food resilience? This is probably one of the most important aspects in vertical farming today. One of the most important questions that we need to ask. 
Vertical farming is not a one-size-fits-all system. As we discussed before, it takes a very different form in North America than it does in Asia, than it does in Europe, and it needs to take a very different form again in the Middle East. So it's constantly being reinterpreted to fit the local market. And I think this is exactly right because we cannot apply one system to food production everywhere. It needs to be adapted to local conditions. So this adoption and adaptation is really key in vertical farming. So it's a matter of being adopted now in various markets, particularly in areas that are most at risk, whether that is a lack of arable land and water and natural resources, or it is high reliance on food imports. It's often both. So it's important for it to move into that direction. And uh, it's also important that this being adapted to the local conditions. For example, um, produce the crops that's most locally relevant. So herbs and salads might not be of interest everywhere. One needs to look at what are the local crops that are in high demand. Or, for example, the crops that are staples in the local diet. Partnerships with local communities is going to be really important because vertical farming needs to make that case locally that is aligned with local needs and preferences. For that to happen, more partnership and collaboration needs to happen with local farmers, with community organizations, and of course with governments to to make those projects locally fit. And last but not least, renewable energy sources. So this is going to continue to be a problem in the vertical farming and CEA in general, As I said again, this is not a permanent problem, but in the next 10 to 15 years, we need to really tackle it. And the way to tackle it, importantly, is energy sourcing. And that energy is going to take lots of different forms locally. So in some areas, it's going to mean utilizing nuclear sources of energy. In other areas where you have an abundance of sun, it's going to mean using solar. In other areas, it's going to mean wind. But basically, we need to look at energy sources that are cost effective, uh, that are energy dense and that are renewable and carbon free to make the vertical farming both cost effective and sustainable going forward. You mentioned the next 10 to 15 years. So I'd, I'd love finally just to get a sense from you looking forward over the next decade, the next 15 years. What kind of a dent can vertical farming really make in the global food system? Are we going to be seeing large proportions of what we eat being produced in this way? So in the past decade, we have seen the industry scaling and kind of proving the point in some ways. So we have a proof of concept. We've seen the vertical farming works. We've seen that it's flexible and agile. We've seen that it can be adapted to different conditions. So that's a great start. But as you said, what needs to happen in the next 10 to 15 years is going to be really crucial. The next decade, I'm hoping, is going to be all about exponential growth because of of that scale that's necessary to make an impact through CEA and vertical farming. Vertical farming is projected to grow economically to about $30 billion in that time frame, but this excludes staple crops. So if we add staple crops to that, which there's a lot of evidence that this is looking good, this is looking promising to produce staple crops indoors in a commercially viable way within the decade, then that equation could look very differently and those numbers will be redefined. So it's difficult to say how much of a dent it's going to make exactly, 
But I would make a bet that is going to be a significant dent. Um, and I'm hoping that uh, we continue to see positive surprises in the next years and how that industry grows, how it's adopted, and also how it's going to increase its uh, portfolio of crops and change the way that it is um, using energy. Well, positive surprises are the best kind of surprises. So, all of us, we're going to keep our fingers crossed to see, uh, realise what you just described. Thank you so much for joining us today. A really fascinating conversation. Thank you for the opportunity. Wired Foresight is a Condé Nast Entertainment production. Jessica Taylor is our managing producer. Emily Elias is our producer. Annalise Beagent is our production assistant. Jake Loomis is our mix engineer. Special thanks to Hannah Brewer, Jordan Bell, Peyton Hayes and Nico Steele. I'm your host, Greg Williams, and we will be back next week with a conversation with Lubomila Jordanova, the founder of software startup Plan A that works to help large organisations decarbonise. Thank you so much for joining us.